please turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Hebrews and chapter 2. Hebrews and chapter 2 and verse 17. Speaking of Jesus, therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of, his, of the people. The Christian life is a life of faith, and we are to walk by faith and not by sight. We begin the Christian life by faith, and we must continue the Christian life by faith to the end. From the beginning to the end, the Christian life is one of faith. And the writer to the book of Hebrews, the writer here to the Hebrews, he has much to say about faith in this letter. In the early chapters of the letter, he gives many encouragements and many arguments to faith as he tells us of the greatness of Christ and all that he has done for our salvation. And then as we go through the rest of this book, he tells us more and more of the importance of faith. And we want to look at just a couple of passages briefly to show the importance of faith in this book of Hebrews to set the background of our message this morning. And we'll look over at Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 2. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 2, and I'll just be reading these very quickly. For indeed we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith, in those who heard. In other words, whenever the gospel is preached, it must be united by faith in the hearts of those who hear it, or it is of no profit or value to them. We'll turn over to chapter 6 and verse 12. Chapter 6 and verse 12, where he says that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And he exhorts us here of those saints in the past who through faith and patience, faith was necessary. They lived by faith and by faith and patience they inherited the promises. The only way to inherit the promises. If we turn over to chapter 10 and verse 38. Chapter 10 and verse 38, where he says, But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And then he opens chapter 11 with this statement, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then as we read down through this chapter, we see this Long gallery of the Old Testament saints. In verse 4, he says, By faith, Abel. And then verse 5, By faith, Enoch. And so on, faith, by faith, by faith. 
down through the centuries of the Old Testament, they were all men and women of faith. And he says in verse 6, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And then, after this long list of those who live by faith, down in verse 33, he says this in verse 33, By faith they conquered kingdoms. They performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, and so on. Down in verse 35, women received back their dead by resurrection. And all of this was by faith. And then we read in chapter 12 and verse 2, he says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, which means looking to him by faith. And he is the author and the perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so we see the importance of faith in this book of Hebrews. And we'll turn back to chapter 2 and that first verse that we read in chapter 2 in verse 17, where he says in the beginning of the verse that Jesus had to be made like his brethren in all things, the writer to the Hebrews tells us of the importance of faith. And we may say that the book of Hebrews is one long exhortation to believing to faith. Faith is trust and reliance upon what God has said concerning himself in the Holy Scriptures. Faith is confidence in the promises of God and what the writer to the Hebrews is telling us throughout this book is that faith is central, vital to the life of a Christian. The distinguishing mark of all the people of God from the very beginning to the very end of this world is that they were men and women of faith. And so essential and crucial is faith in the Christian life that it is impossible to ever please God without faith. And so this entire book of Hebrews is a long exhortation to persevering and enduring faith. But then right here in chapter 2 and verse 17, in this book which places such emphasis upon faith, the writer tells us that of Jesus that he had to be made like his brethren in all things. And if Jesus had to be made like his brethren in all things, then this must include his life of faith. He had to be a man of faith like all of his brethren. When he says here he had to be made like his brethren in all things, it speaks of his humanity when he came into the world as a man. The human nature that he assumed to himself was like ours in all things, in all of our weaknesses, our frailties, our limitations, the same was possessed, was in the humanity of Jesus, the same weaknesses, the same limitations and frailties in regard to his human nature, so that the life he lived was like ours in every way, so that he was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin, so that whatever troubles, trials, struggles that we may go through, Jesus, the Son of God, has gone through them as well. 
He was God from eternity. He was always the eternal Son of God. But when he came into the world, he laid aside those privileges that belonged to him as God, that he might become like us in all things, and he might live in this present world as we live, yet without any sin. So that everything that pertains to us pertains to Christ, that he might know our experience, that he might be a faithful and merciful high priest with sympathy for us. And so Jesus Christ is the great captain of our salvation in every way. He has gone before us in everything that we must do. He is our example in all of the Christian life. He has blazed the way for us, and he is the pioneer of faith. And he is the man of faith, the preeminent and the perfect man of faith, and we look to him as we live by faith as well. The famous Puritan Thomas Goodwin, he said, Jesus was to live by faith like as we are. For in this example of Christ, we have the highest instance of believing that ever was. So Jesus Christ is the greatest man of faith that ever lived. And this is our subject this morning and this evening. Jesus, the man of faith. We may often think of Jesus in many ways, but perhaps we have not thought of him in this way as the man who had to live by faith as we do. We can remind ourselves for a few moments, what is faith? Different definitions are given. We can turn back to that verse in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1 for a moment. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1, where we read, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith in the Bible is always based upon the word, the promises of God. The verse th speaks of things, things, things that are promised in the word the promises of God. But by their very nature, the promises of God are things that we do not have at the present time. They are things that we can only hope for. And by their very nature, they are things that cannot be seen by the human eye. But faith, faith gives to us the assurance of those things that we hope for. And faith gives us the inward conviction that those things are real and true. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. We may have a very simple definition of faith, that faith is complete confidence. Faith is trust in God. Faith is never idle. Faith is never lame. Faith is always active and powerful. And faith produces a life of submission and obedience to God. That's what we see in the long list of men and women there in Hebrews chapter 11. The theologians, they have said that faith involves three things. Faith involves knowledge, assent, and trust. Faith involves first knowledge, meaning that one must know what God has said in his word, knowledge. 
But knowledge is not enough. Knowledge must be accompanied with assent, which is agreement with what he has said, concurrence with what he has said. We agree that what he has said is good and true and right. But then knowledge and assent must also be accompanied by trust, which is a personal commitment to him in the word that he has given in the scriptures. Many have knowledge and they have assent. They have knowledge of many things from the Bible and they may even say that they are good. Jesus is a good teacher and he is a good example, but it is not followed by the personal commitment of trust that leads to a life of obedience to God. So all of these things make up faith. There is knowledge of the word. There is assent to the word. And then there is trust in the word that enables one to live according to it. This is the faith of God's people from all times. And it has always been their faith that saves. And it is the faith that we find in the life of our Lord Jesus this morning as well. So as we look at the life of faith of Christ, we want to look at three periods of his life of faith today. This morning, first, faith from the manger and faith in his life, in his ministry. And then also this evening, we'll look at faith in his death. So in the first place this morning, we see faith from the manger. And we'll turn back to that passage that we read earlier in Psalm 22. In Psalm 22. And as we read this Psalm earlier, we saw that it is a well-known Messianic Psalm. Verse 1, Matthew tells us, were the words of Jesus from the cross in his sufferings, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then in these opening verses of the psalm, we have the inner thoughts of Jesus as he hung upon the cross. And we see in verse 7, this is what he said within himself, all who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. And that phrase there in the beginning of verse 8, commit yourself to the Lord, that is translated in most of our English Bibles as he trusts in the Lord. He trusts in the Lord. And Matthew tells us in his gospel that these actual words were spoken by the multitude as they mocked Jesus upon the cross and we could turn to that passage very briefly. Keep your finger here. We'll turn to Matthew chapter 27. In Matthew chapter 27. And I'm just going to point this out to us very briefly here this morning. In Matthew chapter 27, beginning at verse 39. And those passing by, we see these very same words from Psalm 22 being fulfilled here. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads, 
and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and the elders, were mocking him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we shall believe in him. And now they quote, they did not know they quoted, but they were quoting from Psalm 22. He trusts in God. Psalm 22 and verse 8. He trusts in God. Let him deliver him now if he takes pleasure in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. So the very words from Psalm 22 are quoted by the multitude. And Matthew tells us they were fulfilled in the sufferings of Christ. We turn back to Psalm 22. And what they were saying as they mocked Jesus upon the cross was, see what your trust in God has brought you now to. How vain, how useless your confidence in God really is that you hang now upon a cross and you suffer in crucifixion and there is no one who can deliver you or help you. He trusts in God and see if anyone can deliver him now. And then as the multitude mocks Jesus in verse 8, Jesus now responds in his own soul in verse 9. As he now from the cross remembers God's mercy to him from the very beginning of his life. Verse 9, yet thou, this is Jesus remembering in his mind as he suffers and faces the mocking multitude, yet thou art he who didst bring me forth from the womb. Thou dost make me trust when upon my mother's breast. In the first half of the verse, he remembers that it was the Lord who brought him safely into the world, yet thou art he who dost bring me forth. It was you, my heavenly Father, who brought me safely into this world. He does not speak here of his supernatural conception in the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit. That is a separate matter to keep him from the stains of original sin. But Jesus speaks here of the natural process by which every child must develop in his mother's womb. He was made like his brethren in all things. And the words of Psalm 139 were as true for Jesus as they are for any other person. Thou dost form my inward parts. Thou dost weave me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are thy works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from thee. When thou, when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. And just like all of his brethren, when the time of development was completed and the day 
of his birth came. It was by the goodness and the mercy of God that he was brought safely from his mother's womb into this world. Thou dost bring me from the womb. It is a common mercy to all people in this world, but it is still a very great mercy. And this is where Jesus' life began. And he speaks of it from a sense of his utter dependence upon his heavenly Father for all things. This is where my life began, my heavenly Father. When I was most weak and helpless, thou hast sustained me from my birth to this present hour given me life and breath and all things, thou art the one who has brought me forth from the womb. And then he says in the second half of the verse, thou dost make me trust when upon my mother's breast. Trust is faith. And so his trust, his faith, his confidence in God for all things, Jesus remembers that it was from the earliest days of his life, as far back as he could ever remember in any consciousness from the time of his infancy when he was upon his mother's breast, he was trusting in his heavenly father, living by faith. We notice he says at the end of verse nine, thou the Lord, just make me, make me trust. My heavenly Father made me trust as if this was the Father's will for him. This was his heavenly Father's purpose for which he was sent into the world that he would trust in him and live a life of faith like all of his brethren in all things. He had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might live like us in all things. And this must include that life of faith from the earliest days, from his mother's womb, thou dost make me trust, thou dost make me live a life of faith, even from my mother's womb. And then he says the same thing in different words in verse 10. He says, upon thee I was cast from birth. Thou hast been my God from my mother's womb. So the multitude mocked him as he hung upon the cross. And the multitude mocked him for his trust in God. He trusts in God, they cried out. And now see how vain and empty his trust in God has been as he hangs in suffering upon a cross. But Jesus supported his own soul by this remembrance that his heavenly father had been the one who brought him forth from his mother's womb and that he had always trusted him and his heavenly father would still be his God even as he suffered upon the cross and was still worthy of all of his confidence in him. When the multitude said from verse 8, he trusts in God, what they were really saying is, we know what kind of a man he has always been 
in all of his life. They were unwittingly acknowledging that he was always a man of faith and who had always trusted in God. And he trusts in him now, even as he suffers in the crucifixion. So from the manger, we can really say from this passage, from the manger to the cross and the whole life of Jesus was a life of confidence and faith in God. His faith continued as a young boy as he grew up. He would have learned the Old Testament scriptures as any other Jewish boy would have known the scriptures by attending the worship service of the synagogue every Sabbath day as was his custom and he would hear the priests as they read and taught from the scriptures. In his own home, Mary and Joseph would have sought to fulfill that requirement of the Old Testament that where God said in Deuteronomy chapter 6, I am commanding you today that these words shall be on your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in the house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. And so from his infancy and through the early years of his childhood, at each point of his development, according to the capacity of his mind, he kept increasing in his knowledge and understanding of the scriptures, just as we ourselves do. We have no knowledge until we learn. And so it was with Jesus as he learned as a young boy. We are speaking here of his humanity, which was made like ours in every way. The only source of the knowledge of God to him as a young boy, the only place where he could go to learn of God was in the scriptures. And it was there in the word of God, in the Old Testament scriptures, that Jesus would go day after day and year after year, and there he would learn of God from the word of God. And as he studied the scriptures, under the light of the Holy Spirit, the truth came to him bit by bit, and passage after passage in a way of mystery that we cannot understand. But Jesus came to understand his own identity and who he truly was as the Son of God, the Messiah, who had been sent by the Father, as the prophets had said. The Holy Spirit teaching him from the scriptures of the coming Messiah, the sufferings of the Messiah, the glories of the kingdom that would follow Jesus came to identify and understand who he was. The process that Isaiah speaks of in Isaiah 4, 50 and verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not disobedient nor did I turn back. And because he was perfect in holiness and because his conscience was pure and his will was always submissive to the word of his heavenly father, 
He was unhindered. He was unhindered in any way from receiving truth. And the word of God dwelt richly within him. But this is all in regard to his human nature. One man put it this way, there was no golden pipe from his divine into his human nature by which he grew in the knowledge of God. The only source of the knowledge of God to him as a man was scripture. And Luke, in his gospel, he tells us that Jesus learned scripture so well that we see what happened in Luke chapter 2 when he went up to the feast. We'll turn to Luke chapter 2. In Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 41, Jesus and his parents, they went up to the Passover in Jerusalem. When the Passover feast was finished, his parents returned home unaware that Jesus remained behind. And then when they returned looking for him, we see what happened in verse 47, 46, and 47. And it came about that after three days, they found him. Where did they find him? They found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So here was Jesus, a 12-year-old boy. He was in the temple. He was discussing the scriptures with the great teachers of the law, the scribes and the Pharisees, and they were amazed when they heard him. That a 12-year-old boy had such understanding and such wisdom and knowledge from the word of God. And then verse 48, and when they, his parents saw him, They were astonished, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Jesus respectfully was surprised that they had to look for him, that they did not immediately know where to find him, that there was really only one place where they should go and look for him, and that was in the temple in his father's house in Jerusalem. We see the contrast between what Mary said at the end of verse 48, where she said to him, your father and I. And then what Jesus says at the end of verse 49 where he spoke of my father. Mary spoke of your father, meaning Joseph. Jesus spoke of my father, meaning his heavenly father in heaven. So by the time he was 12 years old, Jesus had come to realize that his real father was not Joseph, but God himself in heaven. And he could speak of him as my father. And he knew he was the son of God in human flesh. The prophecies of the Old Testament were coming to their fulfillment, had come to their fulfillment in him, where God said to the Messiah, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and bear a son and she shall call his name Emmanuel. A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, his name will be called the mighty God. 
And Jesus said in verse 49, did you not know that I had to be about my father's business? A personal prophecy. This was his life and what he would always be about his father's business. From the scriptures. He did not know everything, perhaps at this time, that his father's business would bring him into the sufferings of the Savior, the cross as a propitiation for sin, but he would continue to grow in the knowledge of God's will for him, and he would never turn back from it. For him, it was natural for him to speak of God as my father, for Mary and Joseph, they did not understand, as verse 50 tells us, and they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. Faith requires knowledge, assent, and trust that leads to obedience. And Jesus had all of those things, as we read down in verse 52, that he, well, verse 51, he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them, and his mother treasured all these things in her heart. Jesus by faith in the scriptures, living a life of obedience even to his earthly parents and in submission to them in all things. So we've seen Jesus, the man of faith, from the manger. Now we want to see Jesus, the man of faith, in his public ministry. And we see that in Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4 and I'll read the first four verses. And Jesus, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led about by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. Now that chapter division where it says chapter 4 in our Bible, sometimes those are not helpful. They interfere, tend to interfere with the flow of thought. And that's what takes place here as we look back at the last verse of chapter 3 where Luke speaks of Adam, Adam, the son of God. He traces out the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to the first man. And he mentions there at the end of verse 38, Adam, the son of God. And then, then he immediately begins with the ministry of Jesus in chapter 4. And he says, and Jesus, Adam, the son of God, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. The contrast is between Adam and Christ. Adam was the first son of God. Jesus Christ was the divine, eternal son of God. Adam was the first man, Jesus the last man, the last Adam. Both were tempted by the devil. 
Adam was tempted in a lush garden of paradise. Christ was tempted in a harsh and barren wilderness. Adam was tempted when all of his needs were abundantly met. Christ was tempted when he had been 40 days and 40 nights without food. Adam was tempted when he was exalted as the pinnacle of God's creation. Christ was tempted when he was suffering in a state of humiliation. Adam was tempted once and he fell with such ease. Christ was tempted for 40 days and he resisted and he stood strong to the very end. Where the first Adam fell, the last Adam conquered every temptation. And Jesus had just been baptized by John the Baptist, if we look back in chapter 3 to verse 22. 21 and 22. Now it came about when all the people were baptized that Jesus also was baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven, the voice of God the Father. Thou art my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased Jesus, when he heard those words of his heavenly Father, when he saw the Holy Spirit descending upon him, he would have known these are the, this is the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 1 being fulfilled in me. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. And God the Father here declaring Jesus publicly to be his beloved Son in whom he delighted. Thou art my beloved Son in whom my soul delights. Jesus had known God to be his heavenly Father from the age of 12 years old. But now this was strong encouragement to his faith as he began his public ministry to hear the words of his heavenly father speak from heaven. Thou art my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But then immediately, immediately after his baptism, now Luke tells us in chapter four in verse one that the devil came with his temptations and all of these temptations were in one way or another an assault upon the faith of Jesus, an assault upon his trust and his confidence in God. In verse 3, the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. It was a temptation at the greatest point of his vulnerability, his need for food after 40, year, 40 days of hunger. It was a temptation to doubt the word of God 
Just as the devil had come to Eve in the garden and said to her, Indeed, has God said. And God the Father had just spoken out of heaven, Thou art my beloved Son. And the devil comes immediately and says, If you are the Son of God, if you truly are the Son of God, an assault upon his faith and his confidence in the word of God. And it was a temptation to doubt the care and the provision of his heavenly Father. To put doubts and questions into the mind of Jesus. If you really are the Son of God, in whom he delights, and if he is so well pleased with you, as he has said, then why has your heavenly Father left you in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights without any food? And if you really are the Son of God, then why has he brought you to this weakened and famished state as if he does not care for you? It was an assault upon his faith in God as if the devil was saying to him, how can you reconcile how can you reconcile being the Son of God and be in this most deplorable state that you are in, on the brink of starvation? And how can you continue to trust in him any longer? Give up your faith. In him, Jesus. Take matters into your own hands. Even if you must violate his will, take matters into your own hands and use your powers to turn this stone into bread so that you will not perish and your human needs will be met. He continued in faith in God. He rejected the assault of the devil upon his faith. And he continued in his confidence that his heavenly father, in his good time, in his good providence, and in his own way would meet all of his human needs. Jesus answered him in verse 4. He said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. The devil had questioned the word of God. Jesus rebuked the temptation with the word of God. It is written, his faith in the word of God, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. The 
quotation comes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, in which God called the people to remember how he had led them through the wilderness for the 40 years. And he said there that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. And he let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone. There's the quote, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And the idea in that passage is that a man's life depends not on physical provisions, but a man's life depends upon the power of God to sustain him. And God is able to sustain his people even by supernatural manna out of heaven whenever he chooses. The ancient Israelites, just like the ancient Israelites, had to humble themselves under the mighty hand of God in the wilderness. And they had to trust his sustaining power for all their needs. So Jesus will do the same, he says. Man, man must live by God, by the power of God, not by just bread alone. And he was made like his brethren in all things, and he will suffer like them as well. And he must live this life of faith in the kindness, the provision of God. We read the second temptation in verse 5 and 6. And he led him, up by, led him up and showed him all the foundations of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. The Father had promised Jesus a glorious kingdom. But Jesus knew from the Old Testament scriptures that that kingdom would only come through suffering. But the devil here promises Jesus that he can have a kingdom. The devil will give him a kingdom, but a kingdom which does not have to come to him by suffering or by the cross. If only, if only he will bow down once, if only he will bow down and worship the devil, then the devil will give him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. It was ultimately a deception, an attack upon his faith in the promises and the ways of God in the scriptures. Because the only kind of kingdom the devil can give is a temporary kingdom, the mirage and the illusion of a kingdom, but it can never be the true kingdom of God. The question is, would Jesus believe the promises of God or would he believe the devil? Would he choose the path of suffering as the only path to the true glory of his kingdom or would he choose the path of ease and comfort to a kingdom that the devil would give him, but was only temporary and an illusion. 
The same temptations are proposed by Satan to Christians today. Will we worship and serve him on his terms? And will we be willing to suffer in this world that we might have the glory of the world to come? Or will we choose the way of ease and comfort and fall for the lies of the devil? Jesus rebuked the devil with the word of God once again. In verse 8, he said, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The third temptation was the temptation for Jesus to cast himself down from the pinnacle of the temple. And it was a temptation to put God to the test and to prove if God was really with him. It was a temptation for Jesus to live by sight and not by faith alone. And Jesus responded in verse 12 that we must live by faith and not by sight. And he answered and said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And then we read in verse 13, and when the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. What the words mean is that when the devil had finished every possible temptation, in every conceivable way against Jesus, when he had at this time unleashed his fury and the dark powers upon the mind and the soul of Jesus for 40 days and 40 nights in ways that are unimaginable to us. When the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him. He departed from him, but not permanently, but only for a while until an opportune time. And there were many opportune times of the devil's temptations in different ways throughout the life and the ministry of Jesus. The three temptations that are mentioned here are unique in the sense that they mark the entrance of Christ into his work as the Savior. But they were to continue. They came, Jesus came to build the kingdom of God. And if he had failed at this point, in any of these temptations throughout all of these days, then the kingdom of God would have been destroyed. But these temptations are only a sample of what he would face throughout the rest of his life. And all of them a, temptation, a, t a testing of his faith and confidence in God, in his promises, in his word, in his ways. And Jesus would have to pass through all of his temptations in the same way, by confidence in the word, by faith. It is written, it is written, it is written. He knew the Old Testament scriptures, and by faith he conquered the devil in his temptations. His great weapon was the word of God, because he was the man of faith, confidence, and trust in God from his mother's womb. So Jesus in his early life, Jesus in his ministry, 
He's always the man made like us in all things so that he might live as we do in every way and that he might be one who must trust in God and have confidence and faith in him. He is the perfect man of faith. Two brief applications as we close this morning. And the first is that if Jesus' faith was tested, so our faith must be tested as well. His faith was being tested. Faith must be tested. The faith of Jesus had to be tested under temptations, under trials, under the struggles of his life. And if it was true for him, then so it will be true for us. Our faith must be tested. This is what James speaks of. This is what Peter speaks of. Do not be surprised, he said, at the fiery ordeal that comes among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, the sufferings of Christ under those same fiery trials of temptation, keep on rejoicing. So that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. His faith was tested by the trials, the temptations of life, and our faith will be tested as well. A second thing, application as we close, is that the temptations of Jesus are our temptations today as well. They are really the same in their essence. We must live by faith in the word of God and trust him for all things. We must follow him in all of our ways in this world and we must not follow the evil one or the deceptive ways that he has put into this world. We must humble ourselves and submit to his will. We must trust in his good providence and depend upon him alone. We must live by faith in the unseen God to help us in every time of trouble and burden in this life. We must live by faith, not by sight, but by faith in him. And we must not take matters into our own hands and do things our own way or the ways of our own will or the will of the world. But we must be faithful to the word of God and trust in what is written in the scriptures. He alone will help us as he helped Jesus. And he, is alone, he alone will be faithful to us in all things. Let us pray together. Father and gracious God in heaven, Thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, who was that perfect man of faith, the author and the perfecter of faith, the one who has gone before us as our example to follow in confidence in the word of God. Thank you, our Father in heaven, that we may resist the evil one in the same way, and that we may say that it is written and your promises will prove to be true for us as well. Help us to follow your beloved Son, 
to be like him, conformed to his image. In every trouble and trial, give us grace to walk by faith and to believe all that you have said. Have mercy upon us. Bless your word to us now, this day, to every one of us, according to our need. In Jesus' name, amen.